Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 41 of the Odd Nauseam Podcast. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle, and I am here as I am always with my good friend, Dr. David Noe. How you doing, Dave? I am enjoying this beautiful summer weather. This is perfect, isn't we, it? We are expecting uh, highs in the upper 80s, and by Saturday or Sunday, it's going to hit 90. That's that's too much for me. I like it. Do you, you like the heat? I do. I like the heat. How about the humidity? Uh, like- not as crazy about the humidity. Yeah. I remember visiting Athens in 20. 20- 12 and uh, that was an august trip and the heat rolls up over the ocean i mean from the ocean up over the city right onto the acropolis yeah it can get heavy it's really heavy but mm. you know i don't i don't mind it I, I like the sunshine very much gotcha well for me this is the perfect weather today i mean low humidity clear blue skies nice little breeze you can't beat uh, michigan in june it's it's, it's very it's true. fantastic yeah so what, what are we talking about today? We are talking about Mithras. Mithras. The mysteries of Mithras. All right. Yeah. Ancient mystery cults. And uh, we're going to get into what we know, what we don't know, and... Um, what we don't want to know. We, a little bit of what we don't want to know. And a lot of kind of mysterious iconography, archaeology, imagery that we're going to do some uh, uh, heavy-duty speculation about. Sounds fascinating. Yeah. But you got our shout-out before we get to that, right? I do. This one goes to the Reverend Dr. Jeffrey C. Waddington. A friend of mine, uh, Jeff has a real interesting background. He was actually in the Salvation Army at one point, served as a pastor there. Uh, then he came into uh, the Philadelphia area around 1998. Uh, and then he's in the denomination that I call home, which is the uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So he's done a lot of teaching. He's done a lot of scholarship. And uh, word has it that he's uh, now pastoring a church in Pennsylvania. And he likes the podcast. Excellent. That's always good. Right. Yeah. So he's a, he's a faithful listener. Yes, he is. And so thank you, um, Reverend, yes. for, for following us. Yes, for yeah. being interested in these important things. And uh, we often say thanks for keeping the flame alive to those who are teaching Latin. Uh, Jeff is out there pursuing these kinds of um, uh, things of eternal value, I would say. And so we're grateful for that. And I think you also have in the notes, he's a, a student of Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, right? Yes, yeah. he's, a, he's a bit of a, a jack of all trades. Excellent, excellent. And shares your name. Yes, even better. I knew I liked this guy. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you got an opening quote for us, don't you, today? I, I do. It's nice and short. And it actually comes from someone uh, with a very improbable name, Luther Martin. Luther Martin. And, and he's a, 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 a scholar of religion. I mean, did this guy's parents want him to go into this or, or that's, what? That's not a, a kind of a switching of first and last name, an, an opit? Oh, I'm sorry. I mean a typo? <laughs> it's not a typo. Guy's last name is Martin, and his parents named him Luther. Okay, so yeah. what did he have to say? He had to say, well, um, this is from an article that he wrote called um, Roman Mithraism and Christianity. Uh, he writes, in 1882, Ernst Renan summarized his view from modernity in his widely cited judgment that, quote, if the growth of Christianity had been arrested by some mortal malady, the world would have been Mithraic. Hmm. And today, we're not going to really get into kind of comparisons between the mysteries of Mithras and Christianity. Okay. But... I like this quote. It's a famous quote for those working in, in kind of ancient religion. And it speaks to the popularity of, of Mithraism. Also, the, the concept, if I may, of revisionist history a little bit. 
What do you mean by that? Well, I'm, I guess not revisionist, but alternative history. Okay. So not, yeah, so, oh, right, right, not, right. not so long ago, I was watching this uh, series. I think Philip Dick was the author of Man in the High Castle. Well, I watched a bit of that too. Yeah, it yeah. kind of... I lost interest in it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, it promised big, it didn't deliver so much. Agreed. But anyway, it's in it, at any rate, it's um, looking at what if the Nazis and the Japanese had won the Second World War right. instead of the Allied powers. So people like to speculate about these kinds of things. It's inherently interesting. We did some of that with um, the Greco-Persian Wars, right? If not for Thermopylae, yeah. people would be reading Persian literature, right. Not, right. not Greek literature. Right. So what does this uh, Ernst Renan quote mean to you in terms of mortal malady, the world would have been Mithraic? Well, I, I don't know what Mr. Renan intended. Uh, my, my sense, it's, it's kind of an intentional hyperbole. And that he's just really trying to, to drive home the fact of kind of how widespread and how popular the mysteries of Mithras were as um, Christianity was also kind of growing and spreading throughout the Roman Empire. So it's often uh, Mithraism is described as a arrival to Christianity. So and I think er- Renan was coming from the fact that not many people know about this cult, but look how important it was. So that's the surprise that's, kind of. Yes, exactly. I right. see. No, I think there the there's a inherent kind of ridiculousness about the, the quote. We know that from well from what we know about uh, the mysteries of Mithras, it seems to have been exclusive to men. Okay. So, um, so that's a key distinction between Christianity and Mithraism. Exactly right. So it, his, it's his, of limited appeal, right? Yeah. Only so, half the gender can participate. Right. So would the world have become Mithraic? Of course not. Mm, I right. see. So, but I don't think that was his point. Got like, it. He was just trying to say, look, this is a, a really important, widespread thing, and um, it's key to understanding what the Roman Empire was going through during these centuries. Right. Now, yeah. I, I know that we don't need to do this for our uh, very educated ad nauseum audience, mm-hmm. but if they're unfamiliar with the word Mithras and they want to do a quick Google, it may be helpful if they can spell it. So. Oh, okay. Yes, Mithras. Yeah. Uh, it's usually rendered M-I-T-H-R-A-S. There you right. go. So what are we giving our listeners today? Well, we're getting into... One of my favorite topics, um, what's usually called ancient mystery cults, and I'm hoping this is the first of um, a few episodes we can do along these lines because it's such a, a, a fascinating, intriguing topic. So we're going to get and we're going to swim into, into some of these murky waters of these what were secret initiatory cults, um, which really sought uh, in some kind of transcendent way to bind the the worshiper and the deity together in a, a mysterious, intimate kind of way that you don't really see in the more public expressions of religion in the Greco-Roman um, era. We might say that those were state religions. Yes. Right? The, the public worship and the fortunes of the state were closely tied together, and these are private. These are private cults, right? Yes. And they also deal with the problem of, of death and the seeming meaninglessness, emptiness of, of death, which, as I understand it, the public cults weren't interested in at all. No. So this goes to Odyssey Book 11, mm-hmm. right? A Pain in the Nequia. Yes, right. We Parts did, we, 1 and 2. 1 and 2, right. So Book 11 of the Odyssey, it's bleak. It's hopeless. Uh, we likened it to the Department of Motor Vehicles, you know, waiting in line. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but but these cults, you know, what what's the expression that you were using? These cults... They flipped the script. Flipped the script. Yes. Right. So tell us more about that. So I'm painting with a broad brush. I mean, the whole subject of the public... Uh, religion is a really fascinating, complex uh, topic. But um, I think there is an element that the public cults, um, their job was to appease these very unpredictable deities, um, to uh, keep, you know, the Romans spoke of the Pax Deorum, the peace uh, of the gods, keep them happy. Um, if, I mean, if anything, uh, one of the things we take away from Homer 
is that the gods are they're unpredictable. Yeah, they're ornery. Ornery and um, not all that interested in humanity. And when they are, it's for their own their own ends. And so, if that's your if that's your theological world, um, you really want to kind of keep these angry deities sated, happy, maybe even looking the other way. Yes, I right? like I like to quote, if I may, yeah. from uh, our teacher, right. Um, the the wonderful Richard Weavers. Yeah. He used to tell me, Zeus is a big brute that refuses to die. <laughs> That's, I, had never, I never heard that. He from, didn't say that? Yeah, he might have, but I don't remember. That's Only great. if you were an, an initiate would he share that secret knowledge with oh, you. Oh, so you had the, you had the end. No, I, I did not. But, <laughs> but he, he would you know, say, Dr. Weavers, what's, what's the difference between Christianity and the pagan gods? It's mm-hmm. very simple. Zeus is a big brute that refuses to die. That's it. You know, there's no morality, no specialness about them. They are immortal. That defines them. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I think we've spoken on the podcast before about how there's even an element um, of ridiculousness to that. That Their their immortality makes them kind of pointless. Right. Right. What is the meaning of their existence? But you have to fear them and placate them because they're real. Exactly. And they'll harm you if you don't. Yeah, right. So you have to deal with them. You have to keep them happy. Um, or distract them. It's the way I feel about the IRS, to be frank. <laughs> yeah. I don't really, I don't really believe in them and their purposes yeah. necessarily. But you have to deal with. But them. they're always going to be there, right. and you have to, you have to placate them, right? Right. I believe it was. I don't want to get too far afield, but I believe it's Ned Flanders who always drops two breath mints into his tax return. <laughs> Does he really? <laughs> yeah, before he seals it and sends it off to the IRS. Oh yeah. You don't want to get on anybody's bad side. That's right. Smart. It's smart. So if you believe, as I do, that, that part of um, the human experience or the part of the need of every human being is some sort of spiritual need, there's a spiritual com- component to every human life, then those public cults would be deeply unsatisfying. Of course. They do nothing for that side of the human experience. And so I, I think that the mystery cults kind of filled that vacuum. Absolutely. They gave meaning to everyday existence and uh, a meaning that was separate from, from public life. Right. To quote uh, Extreme, one of my favorite bands, right? There's a hole in my heart that can only be filled, filled by, by you. you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, great, great acoustic-driven number. Yes, very good. Yes. Nuno Betancourt. Oh. So as we get into it, Jeff, yes. where are we starting in this journey? Well, I think we should, we should uh, talk a little bit more broadly about what we mean by, by mystery cults, um, in case for our listeners aren't familiar with the concept, before we get to the details about Mithras itself. And so, um, so we've talked about how there's this move from the public to the private, uh, from the group to the individual, uh, from some sort of kind of crowd experience at best to some kind of individual transcendent experience. Those seem to be hallmarks of, of all the mystery cults that we know something about. Now, as we'll also quickly see, these things are called mystery cults for good reasons. There's, um, the secrecy that surrounded them was part of their power. And we know that for um, some of them to divulge these secrets um, meant to incur serious penalties. In some cases, even you were liable to the death penalty really? if, you, if you divulge these things. And so the ancients kept these secrets extremely well to the degree that we're not going to find some, I, I, well, because it could happen, we're not going to find some buried scroll that reveals the secrets of what went on in the secret chamber. Mm-hmm. Um, we're left to kind of these very intriguing speculations. Um, but that's, that deep secrecy was something that lent it um, an allure. Whereas with the the, uh, the public cult, you know, the priests are on the Acropolis, they're making the sacrifice on behalf of the populace. There's no real mystery about what's going on yeah, there. Yeah, we've seen this all before. We've seen it all before. And it's, it's the prelude to maybe 
um, you know, the rare times where the this the Paulus could eat some meat, mm-hmm. right? But there was no there was no spiritual individual connection, and the mystery cults offered that. And maybe they would have waffle cones too. Oh yeah, oh absolutely, elef- what... <laughs> elephant ears and things like that. <laughs> that oh, exactly, and people would come running for that stuff. But for the most part, it's humdrum. We, yes, we've seen this all before. Now the word cult, I, w- I would like to give a little bit of an etymological distinction yeah, th- here. That'd be helpful, Please if do. I may. So the word cult often has connotations of something dark and wrong, but the the word's origin is from colocolera, the Latin verb that means uh, to worship. So the Romans could um, agros colera care for their fields, and they could deus cholera, care for their gods. Mm. So there is such a thing as Christian cult, just Christian worship. There's Jewish cult, there's uh, Islamic cult, etc. So not to be confused with occult, which means hidden and dark. Right, exactly. I know when I use this word in class two, one of the things that students often think of first are like Charles Manson. Oh, right, or, or the David Bran- Koresh. Exactly, the Branch Davidians. You're right? in a cult. Yeah. yeah. So it has connotations of something... Uh, evil and concealed. And I think that the mystery religions, I mean, you'll have to enlighten us, they they played on some of those ideas mm-hmm. for their allure, but in its basic meaning, it just means worship. Worship, exactly right, yes. Um, yeah, very good. One of the things that also kind of ties all of the mystery religions together, again, such as we know about them, is um, the center of the the myth or the narrative has something to do with death and resurrection. Okay. Uh, the god or the goddess undergoes some sort of usually kind of metaphorical death and resurrection. They, they go to the land of death. They return from the land of death. They're, they're um, like in the case of Dionysus, he's dismembered and reborn. Mm-hmm. And so there's something about the dying and resurrecting god. Um, the mystery is, as the initiate is tied to that. Be, they become part of the secret. They ride the coattails of that deity through death, past death, to some kind of life. So by being associated with the individual who succeeds in this way, yes. they receive the benefits. Right. Now, the most famous example of that, and I'm guessing that you know maybe our audience might be most familiar with, is the story of Persephone. Right. So Persephone is, uh, is kidnapped by Hades. Who is her uncle. Uh, right, exactly. There's all this weird family stuff going on. Yeah, right? the, the, the earth opens up. There's a giant yawning chasm. He comes up out of it in a chariot or maybe a Prius. I can't remember. <laughs> grabs her, and then she's spirited off to the underworld, and the ground closes over the top. Yeah. To me, it is the most frightening story in all of antiquity. It is. Yeah, it's, it's one of my one of my favorites, and for those reasons, and now I cannot see uh, Hades not driving a Prius now. <laughs> well, I think that when Bernini uh, sculpted this, you know, yeah. there's this uh, wonderful in the Borghese Gallery incredible of the the rape of uh, Persephone. I think originally it was going to they were going to be seated in a Prius. In a Prius, that was the original plan. That got scrapped. Yeah, the patron said, "No, we no, can't do that." <laughs> he had uh, a stock portfolio in the in the oil oil industry, right? That's so right. We're not going no electric there. cars. Right. So Persephone, um, I, I, this is worthy of another episode. Long story short, a deal has to be made with her mother, Demeter, mm-hmm. right? and uh, Demeter, the goddess of grain. Because she has refused to allow things to grow. Right. So she's the goddess of, of, of agriculture. And when she gets upset, uh, things, things, don't, things don't grow, right? No mm-hmm. crops. And so ultimately, there's a compromise that has to be struck um, that she, Persephone, will spend part of the year as the bride of death, as the queen of the dead, and part of the year as the daughter of of the grain goddess. And that cyclical pattern 
um, explains the seasons. And so when she descends to go down to Hades, her mother mourns, the earth withers and dies, we get fall, we get winter. Mm-hmm. And Which then, in the state of Michigan is about how many months? Oh, it's, it's about 13. 11 and a half. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's a whole lot of Persephone descending around here. Yes. Um, but when she returns, uh, her mom rejoices, and we get spring, we get summer. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, that's the mystery. And so I think I, I like to impress upon my students is that, you know, um, live, if you live in a place where you have a very distinct change of seasons, you feel this viscerally, mm-hmm. right? And um, you know, being Michiganders ourselves, when that spring finally comes and the last of the snow melts, there's something kind of inherently it's incredible. joyous about that, yes. right? Yes, I've been waiting for my roses to open in my yard, and they finally did, and you got to mark the occasion. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Now, these a rose in Greece, which is, you know, it's not tropical, it's temperate. It's, right. It, the seasons aren't as marked as um, at our latitude, mm-hmm. but you, you still can perceive them. Yeah, yeah, that's more kind of maybe rainy and, and chilly in, mm-hmm. in the wintertime. Um, so less of a dramatic change, but enough that I think that um, you know the the metaphor. Um, it holds, it holds, true, holds right? for sure, and this is referred to as the vegetation cycle. Yeah, vegetation cycle, you know, the, the cycle of the seasons, and a lot of these that kind of death and resurrection motif is often expressed in the, the blooming of flowers. You even see it in stories like um, the story of Aphrodite and Adonis, mm-hmm. where Adonis is is, is killed. And Aphrodite mourns uh, the loss of her lover, but she changes his blood into a flower that blooms every spring. And so Adonis lives on lives on in this kind of way. It's a very common thing you see in lots of, of not just Greek myths, but in lots of myths around the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the mystery cults tap into that, um, that kind of death, death and resurrection cycle. And so how does this work? We're not really meant to understand. That's part of the mystery. By going through the ritual. Well, hold on now. What do you mean by how does it work? So Persephone can go to death and return. Well, that's great for her. What does it do for me? And so I think this is where the, the, the mysteries, and, and the, this would be called the mysteries of Eleusis, which were the mysteries surrounding the Persephone story. Um, the initiate somehow mysteriously, some kind of ecstatic, kind of unexplainable kind of fashion, are tied to that goddess, and you go through death with her. Now, again, how does that work? I don't, the, I don't, the point is you can't practically spell it out. Well, well this is exactly what's happening. Um, there's a kind of ecstatic, irrational element to the mysteries that's just simply part of the package. I mean, that's, how, that's how I see it. I see. Right. So there are several of these different mystery cults. We're only talking about the, the mysteries of Mithras today, but yep. the Eleusinian ones that you mentioned, uh, I think you also have mentioned already the mysteries of Dionysus. Yes. The Eastern god who comes west at some point from the region of Phrygia, mm-hmm. his dismemberment. And then there, um, there are a couple, at least one Egyptian mystery cult. Right. So the mystery Isis was a, was a, a popular mystery cult. And here too, I mean, I think there's a lot of parallels with the Isis mystery cult and Mithras in that Isis was a goddess kind of imported from the Egyptians. But by the time she becomes a mystery deity, she's become thoroughly Romanized. Mm-hmm. And it's the, uh, that, that's another thing you see um, with these mystery cults is that there's often kind of a, a whiff of the exotic about them, mm-hmm. right? It's not the homegrown cult. There's something uh, Eastern or Egyptian. I think we've talked about how you know, for both the Romans and the Greeks, Egypt was a land of tremendous deep mystery, right? Well, that would be because of its antiquity foremost, I think. Right, and just so much of, of what the Greeks and Romans saw there, they just simply did not understand. They couldn't read the hieroglyphs. No. Right? And these, these massive pyramids, what could it all mean? Right, and so there still is something about Egypt to this day that's kind of, you know, you, you watch a Discovery episode 
uh, on Egypt, and the, the music is always because it was right. aliens <laughs> that, that built the pyramids, right? That's they did settled. all of that. That's been settled, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So um, that was often an aspect of these mystery cults too. It was something exotic. It was something from beyond their borders, and that I think also kind of you know lent uh, its lent it some allure. Okay, and yeah. what about the mysteries of Orpheus? Orpheus too. Um, I mean, Orpheus famous for being the great musician, the great lyre shredder. Right uh, of Greek mythology, liar shredder. You know, you know, shredding like guitars. I'm I'm borrowing this from you. <laughs> don't act like you don't know. I'm talking liar about. shredder. <laughs> His amp went to eleven. That, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. So he's a son of Apollo, the god of music, but he too has this strange story where he's descended upon by a group actually of worshippers of Dionysus. My nads. My nads, and they tear him apart, limb from limb. But his head goes on singing as it floats down the river. Right, and so he goes on. He it's a weird, strange, bloody story, but he also transcends death. His song transcends death. Yeah, to quote Celine Dion, his head will go on and on. <laughs> Is that what she was talking about? Absolutely. <laughs> so we've got at least those four. Eleusinian, yep. Dionysian, uh, the mysteries of Isis, Orpheus. Yep. Orpheus. There's also, there's the Samothracian mysteries, okay. but we do, which we know very little about. Now, did, did the ancients take these things seriously or was it all, you know, one-liners and wisecracks like you and me? It was very serious. Okay. Deeply serious um, and long-lasting. So the, the Eleusinian mysteries of Persephone lasted probably almost unbroken a thousand years. Mm-hmm. Um, and the festival itself lasted for a week, a couple weeks? A week. Yeah, in late September, early October. And they would, they would march, right, from Eleusis from Athens to Eleusis. Athens to Eleusis. And back at the end. Yeah. Um, and it kind of roughly coinciding with the beginning of fall. Mm-hmm. And so again, as Persephone's descending, you kind of follow her in that. Right. Right. And we got to devote a whole episode to the Eleusinian mysteries. At least one. At some point. At some point. Because right. one interesting uh, side note is that there is an author who believes that the word Eleusis from the Greek erkomai and then Eleusomai is a Christ prophecy. Oh, really? The one who is to come, Eleusomai. Interesting. I don't know if there's any, if there is any credibility to that whatsoever, but that, it's a developed thesis. That's, we might have to revisit that. I think we could also, um, I would love to talk about on the, on the podcast is, um, you know, how does Christianity, the, the mythos of Christianity fit into this, mm-hmm. right? That's one thing that I'm sure our listeners are already kind of hearing. Of well, course. The, the, the story of Christianity is also centered around a dying and resurrected God. Yes, right? and the attendant benefits that come from being associated exactly. with a person who succeeds in doing that. Right, and even a guy like Paul often uses the word musteria. Ta musteria. Yeah, exactly. We don't have time for that today, right? So, um, but yeah, this the ancients took these things very seriously. Like I, we were saying, um, they kept the secrets very well to the point where our knowledge only goes so far. There's a wonderful, well, I don't know if it's wonderful, but there's a famous anecdote from the late fifth uh, century BC. Alcibiades. Alcibiades, right. So this young buck, superstar, general, friend of Socrates, mm-hmm. was uh, positioned to be one of the leaders of the Sicilian expedition during the Peloponnesian War. So he's aristocratic blue blood. Yes. Maybe the most talented individual of his generation. Right, exactly. And right before this expedition is set to go, he is accused of, and very likely guilty of, doing a drunken parody of the mysteries of Eleusis and revealing some of these deep secrets in a, a symposium. And the word gets, and there's, there's more to the story than that, but the word gets, gets out, and ultimately he's recalled to, to stand trial under the penalty of death which the ancient Athenians used very sparingly. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't executing people left and right. Threatened know. a lot. Threatened though. a lot, but and Alcibiades, instead of ultimately facing it, jumped ship 
and more or less never returns to Athens again. Mm-hmm. And so that's how serious it was. They were they were willing to kind of cut one of their 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 leaders, one of the most talented guys, because he profaned these mysteries. And this was 415? Yes, exactly. Right around the time of the Sicilian expedition, the Peloponnesian War? Right, right, exactly. So we've established that the ancients took these rites very seriously. Yes. That example of Alcibiades. Was it an exclusive kind of experience? No. These mystery cults, were they exclusive? No, they weren't. I mean, some of them would have different levels. Um, we know that Eleusis, that you could come back the next year, and they, you could undergo kind of a further, what they called an epoptea, further looking upon. Did you have a like a membership card or a punch? You'd get a certain number of punches, and then you got a free. It was a free, a free uh, initiation and frappuccino. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that worked, how they kept membership. That's a great question. But no, you weren't then bound to Persephone for the rest of your life. You know, I, this is my goddess. It was perfectly woven into the fabric of their of their polytheism. And um, this is what's shocking, I think, to people who live in a, I don't know, post-Christian world, we could say, the non-exclusive nature of these various theological commitments. Right. Today, it's a, I think, maybe it's changing. It's a little more stark. You know, you're a theist or you're not. Yes. You're a Christian or you are another religion, but you can't really be two at the same time. Couldn't be a Christian Hindu. No. Right. Right. Exactly. To my to my knowledge, that's not a common formulation. Now that may be people's attitudes, but it's not ever articulated that way. No, it's not, it would be nothing that you would consider to be orthodox mm-hmm. in any in any sense. Right. We know of, uh, there's a few examples that we know that this guy Alias Aristides from the kind of the late Roman Empire from his writings, he kind of collected these things. So anxious he was about the disposition of his soul mm. that he was initiated into many of these cults. And so he had lots of frappuccinos. Lots of frappuccinos, right? That, that little amp you up. Absolutely. Right? So, and Plato was an initiate also into was. the mysteries. He was. And I mean, he doesn't write much about it, but you know, Plato, kind of the cranky stick in the mud that he often was. Oh, that isn't nice. Well, and, but he didn't, have a, he didn't seem to have a lot of you know, respect for traditional oh, he cer- cult. He certainly did. Well, I mean... Okay, let's, let's look at it just like this for a moment. Okay. His major dialogues end with uh, theological fables, right? The Republic, the Gorgias. So you're right. He's taking down Homer. We've, we've talked about yeah, that before. Yeah, that's what I mean. He's taking down Homer. He doesn't like the Homeric uh, ethic, but... He's a monotheist of yes. some sort and has, right. and has a strong religious feeling. No, yeah, I guess I wasn't saying he was... You're going to walk it back now, Winkle? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to explain it for you who didn't understand me the first time. <laughs> okay. He was uh, a theist. Uh, I think he, uh, he had a, a use for religion, but not the, the polytheistic Homeric religion. That's okay. What I'm, that's what I'm saying. So Fair he, enough. Right. Um, that's the euthyphro, right? The, yes. The gods can't be at each other's throats if they're really going to be divine. Exactly right. Um, and I agree. But he, too, is said to have gone through the mysteries and found them a to be kind of a deeply moving, meaningful, purposeful experience. So even a guy like Plato could find kind of value in these in these things. Fair enough. Yeah. So can we talk a little bit about um, the exotic, ecstatic, irrational nature of some of these? We've touched on it. We can maybe just sum it up before we move on to Mithras. Yeah, I would just add that, you know, from the, the trickle of information that we have from people that went through these kinds of things, there was uh, kind of this notion of ecstasy or ecstatic um, experience comes from this. And I mean, slightly different than what we usually, if you're ecstatic about something, it just means you're really excited or happy. Right. But the word literally means to kind of stand outside yourself. Exactly. Let's go to the etymology, right? Echistemi, to place yourself outside of something. Right. So some kind of out of body experience, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think one of the ways that these mysteries could be in some ways easily kept is, is the notion that even if someone 
uh, buddy said, hey, I, want you, I heard you went through these mysteries. You know, tell me what went on. Things like this notion, well, like, even if I wanted to, I couldn't. It was so ecstatic. It was so beyond myself that it was beyond description. It's ineffable. Ineffable, I have exactly. n- I have no analogies. I find some of those stories where people uh, say that they died and then they saw themselves laying on mm. the table, some of them seem like obvious frauds. <laughs> but others seem really, frankly, quite plausible, specifically those that are well-documented and uh, where they mention things that were heard in the room you know, that uh, other persons didn't have access to. Right, right. I find them fairly plausible. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you there. And, and you get, you pile up eno- enough of these, mm-hmm. that kind of lends kind of a broad believability, to, at least to, Definitely. to that experience. Right. So, yeah, something something along these lines, you know, um, I mean, that language of death and resurrection, were these mysteries meant to be kind of a near death experience, right? Yes, um, I think is the answer, isn't it? I, I think so. You know, it's at the center of so many myths. You know, it's the catabasis. You're, you're kind of enacting you, uh, a catabasis. You're facing death in some kind of mysterious, visceral, terrifying kind of way. And then it, uh, you get beyond it and with the resulting ecstasy and more, maybe the more modern sense of that word, mm-hmm. kind of a joyful a joyful expression. Yes, like when you get off the roller coaster. Yes. You've cheated death. Exactly right. Did you like roller coasters? I did. I can't do them anymore because uh, due to my age, I get motion sickness. Oh, really? Yeah. I love them. I love them too. But if, if I don't myself up on like drama, I mean too, I'm just, I'm too sleepy to even enjoy it now. I see. So it's, it's a tragedy. I'm really, I'm really sorry you brought that up. Oh, I'm sorry but too. I, I like, Should we pause for a moment of silence? No, we're good. I'm, 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 I'm past it. Your enjoyment of, <laughs> your enjoyment of uh, roller coasters is finished. It is. Right? It's, it's been years since I've been on one. But the roller coaster as a catabasis, I think that's great. Right? It's a safe way to face death. You go up this hill. There's anticipation. You're pausing, suspense. Then you plunge at a breakneck speed. Yes. Right down to the valley, and are you going to come out of it? Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a death and resurrection. I I often will use kind of the example of a of a horror movie being the same kind of thing, right? You go deliberately into this dark room with a big screen with the purpose of terrifying yourself, and it's a it's a safe way to kind of face death. And when the lights come out and you you go out and refill your popcorn bucket, I always refill. You got to. That's part of the resurrection. Definitely. So now we need to get on to the bull. We right? do Mithras yep. and the bull, but we're going to do that after the break. This week's episode, listener, is brought to you by Adastra Coffee. Located down in Hillsdale, Michigan, Patrick Whalen and his crew are brewing, roasting, brewing? Roasting. Roasting. Roasting some delicious coffee. Jeff, what do you think about Adastra? I had some this morning. Actually, the last of my Huehuetenango. You did? I did. It always goes way too fast. What, what kind of notes do you detect? I'm not the best one to talk about this, but it was a kind of a sweeter, a lighter note. I would say earthy, too. Earthy, yeah. But not soil in the cup. No, no soil in the cup, no. no. It was great. My wife loved it. Um, I'm really going to miss that that blend now that it's gone. It's excellent. Yeah. So the fine people at Adastra have been roasting beans for years, and I understand they only use beans that rank 80% or higher right. on the, the coffee scale. Yep. Now, uh, we're both pretty hard graders, aren't we? We are. Yeah. So an 80%, that's that's doing pretty well. That is very well. Yeah, very right. good. Yeah. I learned they they roast on a three kilogram Mill City roaster. 
Oh. And I actually looked up a picture of this thing. It looks like like H.G. Uh, Wells' Time Machine. Incredible. It's incredible. Yep. Yep. And they have their poetry series uh, where they put some nice lines of, of poetry that you can read as you brew your coffee and as you drink your coffee. I actually found this line from, from Rilke. Let's hear it. Which really fits for our episode today. I want to be with those who know secret things or else alone. The only journey is the one within. The future enters into us in order to transform itself in us long before it happens. Oh, that's incredible. That's, that's deep stuff to read. I'm a little lost. <laughs> with, with, with your morning cup, yeah. Uh, would you say that the folks at uh, Ad Astra have a goal? Um, they do have a goal. It's to, to create extraordinary quality in the cup, value for their producers and customers and strong local communities. All right, that sounds great. So how can the Ad Nauseam listeners score some of this delicious coffee? All they got to do is go to adastraroasters.com, A-D-A-S-T-R-A roasters.com, check out what they have to offer, enter the coupon code A-N-A-A and get 10% off their order. Now, Jeff, we're also sponsored by Ratio Coffee, aren't we? We are, yes. Ratio Coffee based in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Mark Helwig and his intrepid team out there bringing just the best of the best in home brewed coffee. So these coffee makers are not only effective at delivering high quality brew right into the cup, and not only is the coffee delicious, but the machines are gorgeous. Yeah, they're works of art. I have the ratio six, you've got the ratio eight. They're just sleek, good looking machines. Yes, I have the eight, and uh, the other day I had some friends over, and uh, these friends were actually from Oregon, and uh, I offered to make them some coffee, and immediately their eyes just zeroed right in on the ratio eight, and they said, that's a beautiful modern aesthetic. Yeah, exactly. And then I brewed up some delicious Ad Astra beans for them. Yes. They loved it. And these Oregon friends, they know their coffee. They do. Yeah. And in fact, the uh, the woman said, I don't remember her name, but she said, um, I'm going to buy two of these. Really? Yes. Oh, my God. Let me give you the coupon code. <laughs> she wanted one in a, in a backup? She wanted one for herself and one as a gift. A common thing, actually, because once you see these machines, it's really hard to resist. Yeah. So it's an automatic pour over, sends this hot water down through the veins into the cone. And how do you describe the carafe? It's a, uh, it's a stainless steel, sleek, gleaming container for the coffee. Keeps it warm without that, that kind of stupid burner that you see in so many the coffee machines. The scorched machine. pad yep. down underneath, which adds the brackish tang. Exactly, which you do not want. No. Right. All right, so Java Files. Just going to tell you how you can score your own Ratio 6. Yes, I will. Just go to RatioCoffee.com, R-A-T-I-O Coffee.com right now, and you can get a 15% exclusive discount on the Ratio 6. So go to the website, enter the special code ANCO, get 15% off. Check it out today. ANCO, check it out. Today's episode also brought to you by Hackett Publishing, based in Indianapolis, Indiana, and Cambridge, Massachusetts for over, over 40 years, bringing attractive, affordable, accessible translations to the uh, academic and lay reader alike, um, covering the entire sweep of the Greco-Roman era except, and also many other academic disciplines. Dave, what do you like about Hackett Publishing? Well, one of the main things I like is that they generously stepped up right near the beginning of this podcast and said, yeah, we want to sponsor you. They did. They came in really early. They did. They They said, we want a piece of that. We want to be a part of that. We support the classics and uh, we're going to give your listeners a 20% discount on their order plus free shipping. That's huge. Yeah. And they said, we're going to offer them beautiful editions with gorgeous covers, up-to-date translations, nothing too stuffy, too musty. Right. We're going to offer them um, Stanley Lombardo's great translation of the Odyssey, the forthcoming Len Krizak on Virgil's Aeneid, the Aristotle collection. These are really fine works that these folks have put together. Indeed. So listeners, right now you can save 20% on any order 
Uh, and as Dave just said, free shipping on anything you get from Hackett Publishing. All you have to do is go to hackettpublishing.com, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, publishing.com, find the text you want, enter the code AN2021 in the box. What, what was the code again? It was AN2021 in the box. Uh, check it out today. Okay, Jeff, so as we get back into it now, tell us about Mithras. So Mithras, the mysteries of Mithras, were particularly popular throughout the Roman Empire, roughly between the 1st and 4th centuries AD. So about three to possibly 400 years, it was um, even more so than Eleusis in Greece, uh, the most popular of these mystery cults, uh, at least what kind of archaeological remains seems to, to, to suggest. One of the things, one of the ways that we determine this popularity is we find these, these chambers, which um, were called Mithraea or Mithraeum, um, in which the mysteries of, of Mithras were celebrated. We found them all over the landscape of the Mediterranean. So the, so the Mithraeum is the singular, right? It's one of these chambers right. where the cult of Mithras is celebrated, and the plural is the Mithraea and the Mithraea, and you say they're scattered all over Europe. Yes, exactly. We find them in Italy, Greece, England, France, Spain, Germany, Turkey, Tunisia. Um, hundreds of these things have been found. Um, and that's also an important distinction, say, from a place like Eleusis, where if you wanted to be initiated into that cult, you had to go to Eleusis at this certain time of year. There was a central sanctuary. But this was franchised. This was franchised. Right, exactly. You had, it was a portable cult, and all you needed was a group of guys, enough funds to build one of these underground chambers, and you were in business. It probably was more complicated than that, but right. yeah, yeah, you get the point. Licensing rights right. and so forth. Yeah. So, uh, Franz Cumont. Yes. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes, Cumont. Cumont. Yeah. Frenchman. Yes. What does he tell us about Mithraism? He, he wrote, for more than 100 years, was considered the, kind of the book on Mithras. And it's only in the last 10 years where um, religious scholars have started to take another look and started to kind of take down some of his arguments. But for um, a long time, Cumont's thesis about Mithras was this was a, a kind of a hero cult. Mithras was some sort of... Um, Hercules-type figure in Persian mythology that was imported from the East, brought back to the Roman Empire. Um, his theory was that you had Roman soldiers kind of stationed in the eastern edges of the Roman Empire came in, into contact with that and spread it organically, um, much like... After they brought it back, you're After saying. they brought so it they back. They brought it back from the edges of the Roman Empire as they bumped into the Parthians, places like uh, Persia and Parthia. So this would have been... Under Trajan, right? Yeah. 117, I think, 98 to 117. Trajan, the, the Roman Empire, was at its greatest extent. Yes. East all the way to the Euphrates. Right. Uh, arguably, it's most secure as well right? mm -hmm. and most, most peaceful. Right. Um, so then these soldiers, they come back west, and they've picked up some local culture, you might say. Sure. Including the religion. Is there any indication or proof that they were intermarrying there on the borders? I mean, officially, Roman soldiers weren't married. Right. But they always had a common law wife, you might say, and children uh, on the frontier, even if they had a wife back in Rome. Yeah. Um, did they bring back some folks with them? And was this part of the origin of the popularity of the cult? I don't know. It's a really good question. I, and I don't know what the clear answer to that okay. as well. Uh, I mean, certainly, um, this is how Christianity also spread kind of organically, you know, beyond beyond you know, the missionary journeys of, of Paul and, and Peter, certainly you had you know, the soldier class coming into contact in Palestine and, and converting. Right. Um, could a similar thing have happened with, with, with Mithras? It's possible. Um, in, in, recent, in recent years, this has been challenged in that we don't have any evidence that Mithras was a kind of a, a hero in, 
an existing person. No evidence for that. Right. Now, that doesn't mean there, it wasn't. But it does uh, give an opening for op- uh, or an opportunity for scholars to see what's not there. Exactly right, right which I, I, I'm in, more or less in favor of. Okay. Um, but kind of the, the, the new theory is, is that probably not that the, the cult of Mithras is Almost thoroughly Roman, okay. Um, but it was its imagery and its characters uh, in the art and iconography and in whatever narrative there might have been had kind of a Persian sheen to it to give it kind of that exotic flair, mm-hmm. right? So everybody it, likes a Persian sheen, it, <laughs> exactly. Um, so what its real connection to anything actually Persian? We don't really know. Can't say. But it's I I would say the the better corollary is something like ISIS. Um, Maybe something borrowed from another culture, but 98% thoroughly Romanized by the time it becomes kind of a functioning cult. Okay. Right. So what about the popularity of Mithraism with the soldier class? Well, that was one of the things that Kumat kind of built his theory on, is that um, from what, what we can tell is that people going down into these, um, these underground chambers and members of this, of, this, of this guilds tended to be this kind of soldier kind of middle class in Roman in Roman societies who come on and said, well, well, that makes sense because it was probably brought back by that class uh, from the East where they encountered it. Um, still, but uh, again, as the more I read about this, um, speculations about who was actually involved are really just that speculation. There's not a lot of evidence. So we need some hard evidence. We need some hard evidence. We need some sacred texts or something to be discovered somewhere, somewhere. in one of these multiple Mithraia which give us a kind of handbook to how to worship Mithras. Right. That, w- I, that would tell us what's going on. Right. And I think the hopes for that are, 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 are dim. Could we, put, um, could we put Harrison Ford on that? Oh, man. He's getting a little long in the tooth. Nicolas Cage? Please not him. You know he went through his own series of treasury movies. Oh, he did the National Treasury. I right? don't remember the names or the plots. They're pretty much interchangeable. There's so, there something written on the back of like the... The Declaration of Independence. I think so, right. (laughs) And that wasn't Mithraism. It was not Mithraism. But this is, of course, one of the big challenges with Mithraism. With Eleusis, we have the famous Homeric hymn to Demeter, which tells us the story of Persephone, right? And lays out what's likely the the basis of the religious narrative there. Um, With Mithras, there's no text. Mm -hmm. And so all we're left with are these kind of teasing... Um, frescoes and relief sculptures, freestanding sculptures that seem to kind of tell a tale, but what exactly is going on there, we simply don't know. And there are some terracotta figurines, I think, as well. Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of this kind of stuff, but how it all fits together, we don't really know. Okay, so what about the Tarakteni? Yes, so if, I think if, if I had to pick any of these um, themes that show up in the art and iconography as the most important, as the most central to Mithraism, it's the tarakteni, the, the 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 slaying of the bull. So we've got two Greek words jammed together there, right? A portmanteau, you might say, tauros yes. and kteno, uh, to kill. Yes. So a bull slaughter. Yeah. Lies at the center of this religion in some way, or at least that's the most prominent theory. Right. And we'll put uh, a number of, of these these pictures in the in the show notes. Are we still doing show notes? We need to, to kind of catch up on some things, but for this one, I think it's essential. Yeah, I agree. I think if I can just digress, the popularity of the podcast recently, uh, people are really getting on board. It's incredible. Yeah. Uh, episode one, more than a thousand downloads so far. Yeah. And so we fall behind in the show notes. I think just because out of a sense of shock 
at the kind of success we're having. Right. Yeah. And shock and gratitude. Let yeah. me mention that. Uh, yes. Uh, again, always oh, big thanks to the, to the listener. It's incredible. But back to the bull slaughter. Yeah. This uh, scene, this type scene shows up again and again and again. And it's you, they're usually very similar. It, we, sh- we see Mithras, who is depicted as kind of a beardless young man. Mm-hmm. Maybe um, 15, 16 years old yeah. at, at most. Often reminds me of kind of a... Um, sculptures of kind of a young Alexander okay. the Great. But he's got this little kind of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs cap on. It's called a Phrygian cap, Phrygian isn't cap. it? And it marks him as an Easterner. Correct. Right? He's from somewhere in, um, what, east, nor- northeast Turkey? Would that be uh, yes. Phrygia? Yeah. yeah, northeast Asia Minor, just south of the Black Sea and yeah. a little bit to the east. Not all the way to the Persians, but not in Greek territory either. Right, right. It would mark, but again, it would mark him kind of again over the hill uh, uh, in the east uh, exotic. So in the scene, Mithras has his knee on the back of the bull. Um, with his left hand, he's pulling back the, the head of the bull so as to expose its neck, its throat. He's got his fingers in the animal's mouth. Yes. Gripping the front teeth and pulling back with some force. Right. I'm enacting it pantomime here in the vomitorium. Yes, you are. And it's an excellent pantomime. Thank you. <laughs> and what's also kind of striking is that he's often uh, looking away. He's turning his head away, um, either towards the viewer or deliberately not looking at what he's doing. Is it um, is it that he's dispassionate, or he doesn't want to see the slaughter he's about to enact? Well, I think that's it. In I think it's, it's the, the latter. It's yeah. I think it's that uh, the bull. We're seeing kind of a, a a dealing with death here, and so you don't you don't look death in the in the in the face. Um, in the snout, in this instance, right? He's uh, it's apotropaic. He's turned away from it. And then with his right hand, he's plunging a dagger uh, into the, the back or the, or the neck of the bull. Um, and then some, also some really interesting details. So the, where he stabs the bull, there's a, there's a stream of blood, of course, that comes out. And then these other creatures come up uh, to join the scene. There's a dog that runs up to, to lap at the blood. Uh, there's usually a snake slithering up near the dog to lap at the blood. And then just for good measure, there's a scorpion who has attached itself to the testicles of the bull. Oh, this and is uh, a little disturbing. It is a little disturbing. And most of these uh, scenes of the Tarakni have all or most of these elements. And so the question is, what does it mean? What does it mean? Um, and I guess at the end of the day, we don't really know. But the going theory is, is that this is the central scene. So if it's a mystery cult uh, centered around death and resurrection, this must be the central moment of dealing with death. And the animal is slaughtered in place of the individual? It's a vicarious atonement? Something like that, possibly. I mean, there's some evidence that for the Persians, uh, the bull was a symbol was associated with the, with the moon, which is often associated with, with, with death. Because of um, the eclipse and the fact that it seems to be eaten away each month and, r- it, right. th- and then restored. Right, exactly. It and goes through waxing and waning. Yes, yeah. I'm not done. It gets gibbous. So if the bull is a symbol of, of death, um, the uh, Mithras himself is associated with the, the sun, which is associated with, with, with life. You know, the sun, too, kind of dies and resurrects every day as, it's, as it uh, you know, rises and, and sets. Seems a little simplistic. Well... I think it's persuasive in that it's reflective of the core aspect of a mystery cult. Fair. There's clearly, I think, more more going on here. But the particulars, this is not a cult you want to die on. <laughs> exactly. Right. This is not a cult you want to die on. That's a that's a nasty look, Winkle. Come on. <laughs> How do you explain the the dog, the the snake, and the I don't. The scorpion? It's, not, it's not my responsibility. Oh. Well, let, let me offer something. Okay, then. let's right. hear it. So, uh, again, this being a cult that has kind of a 
Persian sheen, if I can use that <laughs> phrase again. One of the many things the Persians were famous for was um, their astronomy, their astrology. So uh, Taurus, the bull, Canis, the dog, Serpents, the serpent, Scorpio. Uh, these are constellations known to the, the Greco-Roman world. Yeah, the zodiac. And so uh, many people say, well, that's, that's what, what, what's going on here. And so the bull represents Taurus. And again, there's some evidence that the time of year in which Taurus was prominent in the sky in Rome, in this area of the world, was a, as a, the time of kind of the descent into fall. And so the bull again represents that the, the season of death is coming. And so the sun god, Mithras, comes in and slays the bull. So you have that death-conquering motif. I got it. Um, and so that it expresses this central mystery. I'll buy um, it. Right? So just as Persephone gets past death every year, Taurus the bull coming back every season, uh, he comes around, slaughters the bull, deals with death. Got it. Got it. So winter gives way to spring. Right. And right. there's some blood expiation, perhaps, as well, and Shirley Jackson. Shirley Jackson. You know, do you know Shirley Jackson? I do not. I thought, he, I thought he played shortstop for the Cardinals. <laughs> Shirley Jackson? It's not an exclusively woman's name. Well, I suppose not. But you're thinking, uh, Ozzie Smith played shortstop for the He did. For that's the true. Right, right. But Shirley Jackson wrote this wonderful uh, short story called The Lottery. This really creepy lottery takes place in kind of present day, but it's a, uh, when you, if you draw the, the slip of paper with the black dot on it, um, you are stoned by the community. And you, and so it's a literary version of The Hunger Games. Kind of, yes. Um, though much better in my That's in why my I said opinion. literary version, because I didn't think that The Hunger Games... <laughs> were were lit, very literary? I didn't read them, but oh. based on what people tell me... Okay. All right. Well, you should read them before you make such a, a snark. Uh, no. No? Oh. Snark all I want. All right. Um, so in, the, in that short story, someone from the community is killed so that the crops can grow. Mm. Right? So that you know, the angry god has to be appeased. So there, um, some have suggested that Mithras also functioned in this way. There's, um, again, you can see this in the show notes, that um, one of these relief sculptures shows Mithras slaying the bull, and he seems to be kind of under, under a vault. He seems to be kind of underground, perhaps. And then above him, you see these um, plants, trees, crops growing. And so the slaughter of the bull is associated with the crops are growing. If you want a, if you want a proper harvest... Um, that's going to feed the community, then death has to be dealt with. And so maybe there was some element of that uh, to, to the cult. But um, it's, hard to, it's hard to say. So, Jeff, I understand we have one final scene yeah. to describe before we go on a mini travelogue. Right. So what is this final scene? Um, uh, yeah, th so in one of these sculptures, and I believe it's just an example of one, you know, so how much can you extrapolate from it? It shows uh, the bull slaying motif on, on, on one panel, and in the next panel, we seem to see Mithras sitting on the carcass of the bull, um, sharing a meal with uh, the sun god, and kind of passing out pieces to his followers and, and, and acolytes there. And again, this is kind of, it's confusing because a lot of the language around Mithras makes him synonymous with the sun god. He's called, he's called Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun. Um, and this panel seems to suggest that he's a separate being. There's not a consistency that we find through this, and that makes it doubly difficult uh, to really kind of nail down a, a narrative. But in this scene where he's sharing this meal, um, we do know that in these, in a Mithraeum, uh, these guilds of worshipers, one of the things they would do was share a, sec a sacred meal together. And this seems to be prefiguring that. You're by, by having a meal together in the Mithraeum, you're doing what Mithras does with the sun god or as the sun god. So this is analogous to the way that we usually stop off at Five Guys before coming into the vomitorium? Right, right, yeah, right. Very sacred. Okay. Yep. 
So let's get to the mini travelogue as we wind up this episode. Right. So in Ostia, which is the ancient port of Rome. Yeah, Ostia Antica. Yes, where the Tiber meets the sea. Mm -hmm. um, There have been, I think there are 18 of these Mithraea. That many? Yes. I do not remember that. Yes. It's the the highest concentration um, of any of these things that have been found in an urban area. There are only seven that have been discovered in Rome. And of course, hundreds throughout the ring of the Mediterranean. But Ostia for whatever reason, seem to have been very popular in terms of the worship of Mithras. Interesting. So in 2016, we went to one of these. We did, yep. All the way back to episode one of Ad Nauseam, we briefly mentioned the Mithraeum and our visit there with the students. Yeah. So we reprise a little bit of that episode, but we're going to go deeper this time. We are. So, so when we were there in 2016, it was a mostly overcast day, if memory serves. I don't remember that part, but that, that's, yeah, yeah. That's good. Okay. (laughs) That it was overcast or that I remember it? Both. Well, I think it added to the experience a little ambiance. Yeah. Okay. We didn't have to take our own fog machine down into the subterranean chambers because we had that kind of thing right. in that the air. such a pain to have to lug that thing around. Yeah, so right? what happened then? So we went up uh, kind of around the bend and over the hill. It wasn't part of kind of our, our scheduled tour. Mm-hmm. And um, you kind of walk down, walk down this hill and it takes you down into this um, almost fully extant Mithraeum. It's mm-hmm. this uh, underground kind of vault chamber, mm-hmm. and uh, with two kind of rows of benches along the sides. So how long would you? How long would you say? It's maybe twenty-five, thirty feet. Yeah, not, it's pretty large. It, it, I mean, you were going to say not too large, but it comfortably fit what thirty-four students sure. and, and two middle-aged, you know, somewhat uh, abdominally expanding professors. <laughs> right. But, and a guide, talkative guide, whom we won't mention. Right. <laughs> but it wasn't like a, a massive temple. No, no. Right. No, it's meant for the intimacy of the initiate. Right. It's and not it's, for spectating. You have to be a part of it. Right. And, it, and it's from the size of these things that we can speculate about, you know, how many people were part of these, you know, these little guilds. As many as had punch cards. Exactly. Right. So they, you arrange yourself on kind of two sides of the benches, so kind of a central aisle. And at the end, the far end, kind of where the the um, the cave ends, there's a podium um, with some kind of depiction of Mithras on it. Usually, Mithras um, engaged in the bull slaying motif, and it's in these chambers where these secret rituals took place. Again, this is really where our knowledge ends. We know that there was a sacred meal. Um, some texts talk about a, a kista mystica, kind of a secret box mm-hmm. where some kind of object was revealed. Right, yeah. and and above the representation of the Tauroctony, this sculpture figure, mm-hmm. there's an aperture, There's a, which is a fancy word for hole. Yes. There's an aperture mm-hmm. in the vault so that the sunlight can stream down through there and give it another kind of a, what's the word I'm looking for? What's that um, Indian uh, string instrument? That's, sitar. Yeah. Yeah. Can give it kind of the sitar sense, yeah. right, of mystery and exoticnesses. Right. Um, many of these uh, Mithraea have that that um, opening at the top. Some seem to have been kind of fully enclosed, and there, again, you would have to have like lamplight or torchlight in there, which also would lend it, make it very sitari. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what happened in there? That was that was the encounter with with the god. That's where the mystery took place. Uh, one interpretation of this that I like is that you know, um, why is it why an underground chamber? And I think my sense is that you're following Mithras down into the tomb. Uh, the, the cave is kind of a, as a burial chamber, and where where else to meet death 
than beneath the ground. Right. It's like the Necromantian. Yeah, exactly. That we visited in Epirus. Yeah. In uh, 2011. 11, right. You go down into the underworld, you come back up, you have your own convenient franchised catabasis. Yes. Because of that whole enacting of the, of the myth. You are enacting your own death and resurrection just by the physical act of going below and coming back out. Right. And yeah. then the Roman soldiers would glance at their watches and say, hey, you want to get a sandwich? Is that what they'd say right after right after the meal? They're going out for a sandwich. Well, soldiering is a hungry business. That's true. All right, so that's really the the core aspect of it, and it's again it's frustrating to the, the degree of which what we don't know. But I mean, to my mind, that just makes it all the more interesting. Now, there we we know that there was likely many other aspects to Mithras worship. We know from another uh, Mithraeum in Ostia, there seems to have been grades of initiation, oh. um, like a like a, like the like the Masons, like CrossFit. Like CrossFit, there are levels of levels of CrossFit. Yes, part so, uh, part of shape I am. <laughs> We're both on the starter level, but <laughs> yeah, part of the way that it's marketed and brilliantly, as I understand, is that as you advance through the system, you get promoted in levels of fitness. I ah. don't I don't know the names of all of them. Stairmaster is maybe one of them, but uh, yes, it's like that. Yeah, oh yeah, and uh, I was going to mention like the Masons. Not as not as fascinating as the, as the CrossFit. Well, or the Stonecutters. The Stonecutters, yeah, right from uh, the Simpsons. From the Simpsons, yeah. uh, starring um, Patrick Stewart. That was it, man. You have an encyclopedic knowledge when it comes. He to was that in. Show. He was in that episode. Yeah. So you could go through different degrees, um, and there's a there's a Mithraeum, uh, the Mithraeum of Felicissimus, that has these different symbols on the floor in that central aisle, which suggests the the different le- starter where the, levels. Where they would stand according to rank. Is that it? We don't know. Was it for Twister? <laughs> Some kind of mystery Twister. Now that's a bold theory. There was Korox. <laughs> there was Korox. There was yeah. So the the Korox, the the Raven. There was Nymphus, the Bridegroom. Yep. Leo, the Lion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paris, the Persian. Mm-hmm. Uh, my personal favorite, the Heliodromus, the Sun Runner. The Sun Runner. Yep. And then at the top was the Pater, the Father, mm-hmm. which was the highest rank. Okay. And we just, we don't know much about what this meant, but again, this suggests that there were other levels of initiation that we could proceed through the cult. So after the Tauroctony, right, they would call out Korok's left foot red. <laughs> I that, love it. Is that pretty much what happened? I love it. It's just, kind of, it's just a party game. Okay. Yep. And then there are these other depictions of Mithras where he's popping out of a little egg and he's coming up out of a rock. Of course. And so there seems to be some suggestion that he was also understood some kind of primeval being that was there at the beginning of the world, um, born into the universe, uh, along with the, what's called the cosmic egg. He comes up out of the very stuff. Of, this is getting trippy now. It is getting trippy. Uh, the, the stuff, the soil, the rock of, of the earth itself. He's, a, he's kind of a, a Roman Persian atom. He's kind of a, a primeval being. He's there at the start of things, and so mm-hmm. he has knowledge of all these things. There's also this idea that the Mithraeum itself was often arranged according to alignment with planets, north, south, east, west, north pole. And so the Mithraeum is kind of a, a universe in miniature. So you're in there in, in, a, in a space that represents kind of all of space and time, and you're with the god who was there at the beginning of it, and so he's in control of it. But again, what, what does this, all this mean? How do you explain it um, in any kind of practical manner? We, you simply can't. So what stands out to me, Jeff, and what we've talked about today is uh, the breadth of these ideas. There's a certain element of specificity in the imagery of the Tauroctony and the scorpion and the dog and so forth. Yeah. And yet so much of it remains beyond our ken. What, what can we possibly know? Yeah. And I suppose that really encapsulates what a mystery is. Right, right. But at, at the same time, 
um, as I often say to my, my myth students, or even in uh, the world religions class that I teach, this central story of death and resurrection, facing death and getting beyond it, um, it's the story with a capitalized, italicized the. Um, it's at the center of so many different things. It's, it's at the heart of, of, of so many of the, the films we see, the stories we read, sure. um, the religious narratives that we read. And this is just another part of that much bigger story. Right. Yeah. And I would just like to say that um, I am not a syncretist, mm-hmm. right? Syncretism, the inappropriate combining of different religions and philosophies based on a superficial resemblance. Yeah. Nevertheless, I'm not at all surprised that Mithraism would have death and resurrection as its central theme. Yeah. Yeah. Nor, nor do I. All right, Dave, we got to get out of here. But before we do, tell us about the Moss Method. Well, Jeff, I have some exciting news. We do? Yes, and that is we are running a summer sale. Oh, tell us about it. Well, listener, you can spend your summer relaxing on your front porch with a glass of lemonade, kicked back in your rocking chair, playing jarts or something like that. Or you might want to get out of the rocking chair before you do that. <laughs> or you can devote yourself to the study of Greek. And we are running a 10% sale, 10% off Moss Method Module 1. These are 40 lessons that I have handcrafted artisanally. Is that the term? Yeah. Well done. Thank you. And uh, prepared just for you. So 40 lessons. These are video lessons that you download from YouTube or you watch on YouTube. And uh, I take you from neophyte, so you know nothing about Greek at the beginning, to erudite. Let's say you have a little bit of knowledge of Greek already. Maybe you've learned the alphabet, some other things you studied in seminary, or you are a, you know, you're a homeschool student, classical Christian school, and you want to just make a start. Maybe you're a grad student. All kinds of students are taking this course. We start out with the basics, and then I develop this great foundation to take you to the more advanced elements. Where would they go to find this? Well, they would go to mossmethod.com, M-O-S-S method.com. Take advantage of our 10% off summer sale Beginning tomorrow, June 16, mossmethod.com. You want to study Greek this summer, and you want to do so with me. Sounds great. Uh, all right, we got to go. So we um, thanks, as always, to our engineer, Mishka. Yeah, intrepid sound engineer puts this all together. Yeah. And who else we got to thank? We need to thank Ken Tamplin and Scott Van Zen, who put together the wonderful music that accompanies the show. Makes us sound uh, really professional. Yes, they do, indeed. We want to invite you, listener, to send us Email to jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V or dave at adnauseum.com. We can give you a shout out. You can tell us what you like about the show, what you hate. You can check out our merch. Leave a little tip underneath the wine glass, as we say. Show the world that you're taking in and keeping down the classics. And what do we have on tap for next week? So next week, we're going to tackle um, the book of Acts chapter 14, where we see this really interesting intersection between uh, the, the pagan world and the Christian world, where Paul and Barnabas are mistaken for Zeus and Hermes. Yes. Yeah. Or um, Hermes and Zeus, actually. Hermes and Zeus. Yeah, right. as the text points out. Right. Paul's the chatty one. Yeah. Right? So he's he, he must be Hermes, and yeah. Barnabas is the jovial, hospitable one who's kind of quiet, so yeah. he's got to be Zeus. So we're going to take a real close look at that, the text there of Acts 14, and draw out some of its implications. It's going to be great. But Dave, you got our gustatory party shot today, don't you? I do, and this is from a woman named Florence Fabricant. I don't know who she is. I love her name. It's alliterative. It's got these nice sounds. Florence Fabricant. Yeah, that is nice. And she says, peanut butter is the pate of childhood. So true. Thanks for listening. Thank you. 